Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us, some, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is God's word. Good morning. It's all right. We'll let that pass. My name is Brandon Lutz. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. Uh, we're in the middle of our sermon series on uh, parables of the kingdom. A parable is just a short story or metaphor that Jesus would use to teach various things about his kingdom or about, about uh, God. Specifically, in our sermon series, what we have been doing is looking at all the parables that start with, and the kingdom of heaven is like, where Jesus is teaching various things, various aspects about the kingdom of God and his citizens. Now, up until this passage, uh, most of what we have been dealing with are, are aspects and characteristics of the kingdom that, that we can experience and partake in now. Last week, we looked at the parable of the wedding feast, and we saw that joy is or joy should be the hallmark of a Christian. Joy should be always coming out of us as a Christian because of what Jesus has done for us and what is waiting for us. Other parables we saw that we, we are, again, that we should be fruitful, repenting, grateful, forgiving, celebrating, growing, hopeful, and a listening people. This morning, however, we're taking a turn as Jesus is telling his disciples a parable to teach them and us that Jesus will one day be returning, and that we need to be ready. As we read in chapter 4, or as we read in chapter 4, we didn't read chapter 24, but as we read in chapter 24, just before this, nobody knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man. It could be right now. It was, it was worth a shot. That would have been awesome. <laughs> it could be tomorrow. It could be in 2,000 years. We, we don't know. But this teaches us that the kingdom of heaven has not yet fully come, so we need to prepare and we need to be ready. Have you ever been unprepared for something? Whether it was at work, maybe it was just a question you were asked. Students, if maybe you took a test and you weren't ready for that. How does that usually work out? How does that usually go for you? I'll share a story later uh, when I was incredibly not prepared uh, for a very big life-changing event. Um, just even mention, I get a little embarrassed. I'm still embarrassed about this story. Um, but as we look at this parable this morning, here is something that should shake, uh, stir, and humble our hearts this morning. Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples, to the very men that do, have been doing life with him for three years, day in and day out, the very men who become the church leaders in the first century are the ones that Jesus says, watch out, be prepared, be ready. 
this morning, you will be tempted to think that you are good to go, that you are ready for the return of Jesus, that your soul is safe and secure. And it very well may be, but Jesus tells us to spiritually ready ourselves, and we read in 1 Corinthians 11 that we need to discern and to check our hearts regularly. For the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. The issue we run into in this passage is that many of us are spiritually not ready for Jesus' return. We are not prepared, but we think we are. We give ourselves a sense of false assurance because we put stock in things that don't matter. There are many people in the church, in the church, in our church, who are Christian by proclamation, who are Christian in title, but the truth is their hearts have not been rescued and secured by the grace and love of God found only in the gospel. My hope this morning is that we will see what it means to be preparing for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. My prayer this morning is that every single one of us would be willing to look inside our own hearts, to take a deep dive into our own soul, and be willing to ask yourself this question. Am I ready for Jesus to return? If Jesus were to come back today, would I follow him into the great eternal wedding feast for all time? Or would Jesus say, I do not know you, and the door would be shut? It's a heavy passage with some heavy things for us to wrestle with. This morning, we're going to take a look at the three main characters in this parable. So let's start with the delayed bridegroom. In a lot of ways, uh, weddings back then were, were very different in, the, in our day and age. For many of us, weddings consist of a ceremony and a reception, a celebration, all which are done in an afternoon and or an evening. Uh, for these people in this time, a wedding would last days, sometimes even a week. Seven days if the parents could make it happen. But before the wedding could happen, the bridegroom would have to pay a dowry or a bride price to the parents of the bride. The groom could not go to his bride until this was paid. Now these discussions of the bride price could turn into negotiations, which could turn into disagreements, which could take a considerable amount of time and delay the wedding. In Genesis, we read that Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, and he agreed the bride price of working for seven years before he would marry Rachel. And as you know, Laban, the father of Rachel, tricked Jacob into marrying his other daughter, Leah, and so Jacob then agreed to work for seven more years to marry Rachel. It seems weird to us. It's a weird custom. What Laban did was wrong and sinful, but this is just part of how it worked for them in this culture. And when the dowry was agreed upon and received, the groom would go to the house of the bride who would escort her back to his family's home where the wedding celebration would take place. Now, the job of the bridesmaids was to have torches so that they could see during the procession to the groom's home. Commentators say that these torches would, would stay lit for about 15 minutes, and then you would need to put more oil on them to keep them lit. This is why the extra oil was needed. Sometimes the bridesmaid would even perform celebratory dances upon the arrival at the celebration, so even more oil was needed to keep the torches lit. So as we think about this story, hopefully that helps give some cultural background, some context to the wedding preparations and the ceremony at this time. Sounds like a closer look at the bridegroom. Two questions arise for us in this text. Why does the bridegroom take so long to arrive? And why does he come in the middle of the night? The first question we started addressing as to why the, bride, the groom does not arrive for an extended period of time 
sometimes the, the, the parents, or hopefully a lot of times, the parents, out of love, out of respect, and out of honor, could have placed a very high price on their daughter. It may have been more than money, as we saw. It could have been time served. There could have been a lot to do with it. But a lot of times the waiting was because the father and mother were putting a high price and honoring and respecting their daughter. And we look at this metaphor when Jesus returns to call his brothers and sisters home, it's easy for us to think, man, God is taking his sweet time, isn't he? Why is God taking so long to finish what he has already accomplished and what he has already promised? 2 Peter 3 helps us answer this question, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years has one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You know, it's funny because I know that I'm so quick to start pointing the finger at God and question, why are you taking so long? Can we be done with this pain, with this brokenness, with this sadness, with death already? But he tells us this passage that, that God is slow, at least how, as we define slow, because there's still work to do. There are still souls that need to be rescued and saved from their sin. The delay is for our sake. It's for our sake so that none should perish. There is still time to prepare for those who are not ready. The delay is for our sake so that none should perish. That's our God. The second question we have is, is, why does he come in the middle of the night? Why couldn't he have waited until first thing in the morning when everyone's awake, when everyone's ready? Picture this. You've been negotiating with your bride's parents for days, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years. You then agree, you pay the bride price, which could have taken a long time to acquire. The father of the bride says, you can now go get my daughter and you can marry her. Is your response after all that time of waiting, going to be nonchalant. You know, maybe you're going to go take a nap. No way. No way are you going to wait. You're going to be so ecstatic. You should be so excited. At least you should be. And you're going to go get your, bri your bride when you get the green light from the Father. It doesn't matter what time of day or night it is. You're going to go get her. Uh, Rachel, my wife and I, we got engaged on July uh, 17th, 2008. Uh, we went back and forth on when we should get married. Should we get married in December while we're both on Christmas break for a few weeks or should we wait till May when we have a longer break for the summer? Uh, providentially, we decided to wait until May, uh, but I gotta say that was by far the longest 11 months of my life. The longest 11 months of my life. I, it could not get here quick enough. I didn't want to wait to be with my bride. I didn't want to wait to start my life with her as husband and wife. I didn't wanna wait. And in the, in the same manner, Jesus, Jesus can't wait to spend eternity with you. Jesus can't wait to spend eternity with you. When the Father says, now is the time for you to go get your bride, to go get the church, Jesus will not hesitate and he will not delay when that time comes. He has been longing and anticipating this day for his entire, excuse me, for all of eternity. So even though we think and we feel like it is too long, this time of waiting is for our sake. It's for our sake in order that we might prepare our hearts and souls for
when he does return. What feels like a delay on our end is ultimately for our good. It's for us. So now that we've looked at the groom, let's now focus on the foolish bridesmaids. When you first read this parable, it seems like these five bridesmaids, they're, they're treated very harshly by everyone else in the story. I mean, the other bridesmaids, they won't share their oil with them, and when they get to the wedding celebration later, the, the groom won't let them in. He says, I don't know you. But if we take a closer look and we understand the context and the role of the bridesmaids, then we will see that not only are these five foolish, but they are selfish. In the end, it results in their great loss. First, let's compare the foolish bridesmaids from the other five. They have a lot more in common with these other five than we might think at the first read. All ten of the bridesmaids were invited to the wedding. Now, who gets invited to a wedding? Family, extended family, friends, close friends, friends you haven't talked to in years. So all the bridesmaids knew the bride or the groom. But think about this. Who gets invited to be in the wedding party? Who gets invited to be groomsmen and bridesmaids? The closest friends. Maybe siblings. All the bridesmaids didn't just know the bride and the groom, but they were very close. And all of them accepted the honor of being a bridesmaid in the wedding. This is all very similar to aspects of how we do weddings in our culture. And just like us, the bridesmaids would spend hours, maybe even days, leading up to the wedding to support and get ready for the wedding together. Think of all the different showers and parties and engagements that you go to leading up to a wedding. The, the day before you have the rehearsal, the day of the wedding, you're spending all day getting ready. The only difference between these five and the other five is that they were unprepared. When the groom arrived to get his bride and start the wedding procession from her house to his, they were not ready. Not only was it an honor to be a bridesmaid, it was also an act of service. For us today, it's, it's very similar. If you have ever been in a wedding party, then you know when you are asked to do things as a, as a groomsman or a bridesmaid, hey, can you help set up some chairs? Hey, can you move those tables? Hey, when the reception is all done, I need you to help clean up everything. If you're the best man or the, or the, the maid of honor, uh, you're asked to hold on to the wedding ring. Excuse me. You might even get asked to, to run to the store at the last second or go back to the house to get something that the bride forgot. The wedding is not about the bridal party. It's not about the bridesmaids. It's about the bride and the groom. The role of the bridesmaids was to serve the bride and the groom. And one of the ways they served, one of the ways the bridesmaids served, was carrying torches while they went to the wedding upon the groom's arrival. Have any ever seen the Indiana Jones movies? Young people maybe haven't. But young, uh, these, these torches are kind of like that, a big stick. with They would put like a cloth and on the top of it, and they would light it with oil. But it would only stay lit for about 15 minutes. So they would need that extra oil uh, to keep the, the, excuse me, the torch lit as they traveled. And then again, when they got back there, they would need the extra oil for the dances. So by not having the extra oil, they were actually being very selfish because this was one of their main tasks as bridesmaids. They were not ready. They were not prepared because they were foolish and they were thinking about themselves and not those who they were serving. Have you ever been unprepared? 
Have you ever been unprepared because you were foolish or you were thinking something, it was all about you, or you weren't thinking about who you were serving, who you should have been thinking about? I, so with great embarrassment, I'm now going to tell this story of mine. Um, Rachel was about eight months pregnant. Uh, we went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you know, you got at least a couple more weeks, you're fine. Um, but Rachel's mom had given, had given birth to three children, and all of them came early. So we just kind of assumed Rachel might give birth early. So we go to the doctor. They assured us everything's fine. You got at least two weeks before you come back. Uh, we haven't done the hospital tour or anything. That, like a few days later, early Monday morning, like 2 a.m., Rachel wakes me up and says, Brandon, I think my water just broke. And so I'm very wise at 2 a.m. in the morning. And so I say, are you sure? I mean, I know you're pregnant. I know, like, the, the baby, Carson, is pushing on your bladder. So did you just have an accident? Could it have been something like that? You probably just need to go back to sleep. Again, I'd, I'd love to say, I'd love to blame this on, like, just my sleep stupor and just in the middle of the night. But I think this was all me. Um, so we drive to the hospital. We get there. We, uh, the nurses check her. The doctors check her. She's in labor. Uh, she is in labor, and we are going to welcome our son very shortly. Uh, so we get her all set up in the room, all set up in the hotel. Uh, the monitors and everything are set up. And, and we realize we forgot our hospital bag. So, like, all, all of us in the, our hospital bag are some clothes for both of us, our first outfit for, for Carson, a few diapers, things like that. Nothing super major, nothing that we can't make do without in the hospital. So, instead of thinking, hey, I've got two friends who live in our apartment complex who have a key to my apartment. They will gladly bring me this later this morning when we need it. I thought, you know, I should just go back. I'll just go back, get the bag real quick, and then I'll come back. We said we got a lot of time, so let's do that. I drove back to the apartment. Oh, this is where it gets bad. <clears throat> so I go in the apartment real quick, grab the hospital bag. I'm on my way out, and out of the corner of my eye, I see something. My soft, warm, comfortable bed. So I lay down, think to myself, you know, I'm just going to lay here just for five minutes. This is a big day for me. This is a big day for me. I need to lay down for five minutes, prepare myself for what's coming. Uh, and then sure enough, I mean, what, five minutes turned into a two-hour nap. And so I wake up to my phone buzzing. It is my wife calling me because she's seeing if I'm okay. My wife, who is in labor, in the hospital, experiencing something she had never experienced all alone for the first time is calling me to see if I'm okay. Idiot. Now, I, I made it back before labor got intense. Uh, Rachel and I are still married somehow, uh, but that's just a small glimpse of what it's like to be married to me, so please continue to pray for Rachel. Um, I still, like every few months, that, that story will somehow come up in thought or conversation, I, I feel like I have to apologize to Rachel every time it comes up. How foolish and how selfish was I for doing that? I was so consumed with my own desire that I was blind to the big event that was going on that my wife is giving birth to my first child. If Carson would have came as quickly as Avonlea did, then I would have missed his birth. That door would have been shut on my face. Coming back to the parable Jesus tells his disciples, Jesus is telling them this, this metaphor of what it will be like when he returns after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension. Jesus is telling us two things. 
we need to make sure that our souls are prepared to meet Jesus on his return. Also, it is really easy to think you're prepared to believe that you are ready when you are not. It makes us ask the question, why are we not prepared for Jesus' return? Jesus told a couple of other parables in Luke that go after the same question, the same thought. A rich man built bigger barns for all the excess that he had so that he could take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, you will, then who will get what you prepared yourself for? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. In Luke 16, we read the parable of a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived in luxury every day and did not prepare and make ready his soul for eternity. When the rich man died, he wanted more than anything. He wanted more than anything to go to his brothers and say, you need to prepare your hearts. You need to prepare your, whole, your, heart, your souls for this day because hell is not what you want to experience. You see, we are so blessed in so many ways. All of us, so many of us, the freedoms we have, the opportunities for us, the financial wealth almost everyone in our culture has when compared to the rest of the world. But we have to be so careful that our hearts don't start thinking that the party is on this side of heaven. Listen, all, all the greatest things that we could possibly experience here don't even compare to what is waiting for God's children. Don't even compare. We don't have a category in our imagination that can help us understand this. So what makes you say, yes, excuse me, yes, Jesus, come. Please come. Come today. I want you to come, but not before I get to experience this. Not before I can have that. It's easy for us to blindly be led away by the things that make us comfortable and content in this life. We do so much preparing on this side of heaven in order that things may go well for us in this life that we can so easily forget that what is way more important is that we want it to go well in the next life. What's more important? Your retirement funds being where you want them to be or being prepared to meet Jesus? What's more important? Getting into the college of your dreams or the job of your dreams or making your soul ready for Jesus' return? We know what to say out loud. We all know what the answer is, but do our lives reflect this truth? How does your heart answer this question of what is more important? Is your soul ready? Are you sure? Remember, Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples. Don't be fooled to thinking that you are good to go and off the hook. This brings us to the second part of this question of why we're not ready for Jesus' return. We're so prone to try and stand on the shoulders of others and on our own accomplishments rather than standing on the work and righteousness of Christ alone. Now, I have three children and a wife. None of them are going to be able to stand before Jesus, stand before God at his throne and say, you know what, my dad is a pastor or my husband is a pastor, so, you know, I should be good to go. I can't stand before Jesus and say, you know, I was a pastor, Jesus, so I'll, I'll let myself in. That's not how it works. It doesn't matter if your dad is a church officer. It doesn't matter if your mom had an amazing church attendance record, whatever that is. It doesn't matter how good or moral or generous or thoughtful or kind you are. When you stand before the throne, if that is your foundation, then it will be sinking sand. 
Don't be fooled by good things like generosity or being an active member of our church family. All these things are good things, but they should flow. They are a response from our hearts out of what it means to stand on Christ as our solid rock foundation. One last thing I want to mention in the second point. Third point won't be nearly as long, I hope. I know you all definitely hope. Um, how many of you like waiting? We, we are the worst, probably culture in the history of cultures of, in regards to waiting. When your internet speed is slower than usual, how do you usually respond? When you have to wait 10 more seconds to get Netflix going. What about when you have to wait an extra five minutes or so at a restaurant to get your food? We hate waiting on anything. Which means that as we wait for Jesus to return, we're going to struggle. What particular temptations and struggles does his delay bring us? We all create certain expectations how we think our lives should be, whether we're Christian or not. But in the waiting, what are some of the things that can delay our preparing? Our confidence can even swing back and forth or be lost. We can start to look to other things and make too much of them or too little of God's word and his promises. Slowness is just hard for us because we are stuck in this time of instant gratification. If we're out of shape and want to get healthier, then we know it's going to take lots of time and lots of effort, and we hate that. We hate that. Why can't someone just invent a pill that does that for us? They've tried. It's not possible. The real struggle for us, the real struggle for us as we wait is that sin remains. The longer we wait, the more likely we experience the brokenness, the pain, the loneliness, the loss, and death that sin provide for us in this life. It is easy to experience these things and doubt God's truth and love. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare in this time of struggle and waiting? This question brings us to the last point as we look at the wise bridesmaids just for a few minutes. The five wise bridesmaids are seen almost like a side character. They, they perform their service as bridesmaids by having the extra oil. They go with the bridegroom to the marriage feast, and the door's shut. What is the difference between the two groups? Why are these five described as wise? These five were ready at any moment for the bridegroom to arrive. They were ready and alert to meet the bridegroom, not going to be surprised when that time came. They have placed a high value on serving the bride and the groom. They took their role as servant to the betrothed very seriously. You know, a lot of medical and public service jobs have the same kind of mentality. Think about an EMT, firefighters, police, some medical personnel. Firefighters are not always fighting fires and responding to calls. Sometimes they're at the firehouse sleeping, sometimes at the firehouse exercising or eating lunch, whatever it might be. But when, when that siren goes off, when that siren goes off, they don't hesitate. They're ready. They go. Being ready is reactive for them. You realize that, that you are not in control, but you're prepared. Not only that, but, it, but if you serve faithfully, it is not a, a self-oriented thing. Firefighters don't do their job for the paycheck. They don't do their job for the prestige that it gives them. And in our passage, the wise bridesmaids served faithfully as they knew the wedding was not about them. They were living in the reality where they viewed themselves as servants to the betrothed. 
for us, how do you view your relationship with God? Is God here to serve you? Is that the reality you are living in? If so, you're going to end up like the foolish bridesmaids with the door shut on your face. Are you here to serve God because what he has done for you through Jesus? Are you so enamored? Are you so grateful of the great lengths that Jesus went through to save your foolish, your selfish soul that you just want to serve him in this life and live for him? In John, excuse me, in 1 John 2.28 says this, And now, little children, abide in him, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame when he returns. Abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be ready for his return? He tells us to abide in him. This means to have a close, intimate relationship with him, not just a super, superficial friendship that so many of us in our culture have with Jesus. There is no such thing as a casual relationship with Jesus. If Jesus is just a buddy or a friend you go hang out with every once in a while, then you don't know Jesus. These people will ask him to open the door, and his response will be that he doesn't know you, and the door will be shut on your face forever. <clears throat> you must have a relationship where you live in the reality that I was once lost, that I was once dead in my sin, and then for the only reason that I can call God's grace and his love, he found me and gave me life because Christ gave his life up for me. Does your soul live in that reality? Is that the song that your heart sings day in and day out? Do you find yourself living more and more for him and for his purposes rather than living for your own? Listen, because as we wait and we continue to experience the pain, the brokenness, the loneliness, the death that sin has given us, the only thing that is going to give us hope, the only thing that is going to give our hearts and souls hope as we face these struggles is knowing that no matter what this world throws at us, no matter what sin can throw at us, you have a king and a savior who has loved you and has secured, secured your soul for all time. These struggles and trials of life cannot touch what he has already secured. Prepare yourself for the cost of being a follower of Jesus. Emotionally ready yourself for the cost of the mission. Go to his word regularly to see who our God is, his unwavering grace and love for his children. Live the life of one who is in awe of what Jesus has done for you. Put your beliefs to action and not just a lip service. Remember that Jesus was prepared to do the will of his Father. He was faithful. Jesus attended to the mission of the Father. He did whatever he had to do. If you are in Christ, then you are not your own. You're not your own. He bought you. You're his. But he paid the price. You are on his mission, not yours. You can now serve and wait the, wait the way he served in response to his love for you. As I mentioned in the beginning, it's going to be so easy for many of us to quickly consider ourselves to be the wise bridesmaids. What's so quickly to insert ourselves as, as the good person, the hero, the good character in these stories. But that would be rather foolish and selfish on our heart's part. If you really want to discern your own heart, if you really want to try to understand your own soul, see and see where you're preparing for Jesus' return. Ask yourself this question. How are you like the foolish bridesmaid? 
Let us consider these things today so we're ready when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are so quick and easily uh, to pull us out of the reality that sin has on us and sin has in this world. We are so uh, quick to think that we, we, should, we should be served by the creator rather than we should be serving the creator. That created things should be telling the creator what to do and when he should do it and how he should do it. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not knowing our place, for not living in the, the reality of the truth that you are creator and you have created us, that we are broken people, we are broken vessels, and we need to be rescued, we need to be redeemed, we need to be fixed. That can only come from you. Oh, Father, make us live in this spiritual reality. It's too easy to be swept away in false realities. Make us live in the truth and in the reality that the Creator sent His one and only Son to live and to die for created things, for broken created things, so that not only could we join you at the wedding feast for all of time, but so that we could be your children, so that we could be Jesus' brothers and sisters. Oh, Father, as we consider these weighty things, would you allow all of us to take a, a deep search into our hearts and into our souls and ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we ready to meet you? What is holding us back? So, Father, for, for those of us in this room where something is holding us back for your return, that we're not ready, Father, would you do a mighty work that can only come from you? Would you remove those stumbling blocks from our hearts and from our lives so that our enti- I would love for our entire church family to enter that wedding feast. So, Father, do this mighty work that can only be done from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brandon. Friends, please stand as we sing together. How do we prepare for his return? We live in this reality. We live in this truth. Our sin is great. His love is is far greater and his reach is far greater. That's what we have to live in. And as we wait, we we wait with, with his promises and his truths over us. And so we go out and as we wait for his return, we go with this blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Go in his peace.